More than 25 years ago, MTV aired the very first episode of The Real World. It was set in Soho in 1992, and it very much created the formula for the series we all know today. A few minutes into the show, the first person shows up to the loft, a model named Eric Neese. Oh my God. He oozes and ahs as he walks around the loft. When I walked through the doors, I saw a new world. Holy There's a Roy Lichtenstein print on the wall. Lava lamps, fish swimming in an aquarium. Eric starts dialing up friends, grabbing their numbers from his address book by the telephone. Dude, you guys are not gonna believe this. You gotta see this, please. I can't even begin to tell you. Sick. He's telling them it's bad, it's sick, and if you're not a 90s kid, that means great. The rest of the loft mates start arriving and there are awkward introductions. My first roommate walked in and her name was Becky. Hi. All I gotta say is that you're a queen, I'm a king, and this is, I can't, just, just walk around. And this is where we live. Norman Corpy is the fourth person to arrive. This is totally <laughs> insane. At the time, Norman was 25. He was an art school grad, went to Cooper Union. He had a design company named Gouda, named after his Great Dane, who also appeared on the show. And Norman was making videos with the Andy Warhol set. And we're doing like 15 minutes of fame, where it was just interviewing, you know, a lot of people and putting their lives on like cable access in New York City. So the whole concept of just looking at television in a different way was definitely really appealing. They told him the show would be a docu-series on seven artists all trying to make it in New York City. Thinking back to that moment walking into the Soho loft, he mostly remembers the lights. So many lights. Seeing all the equipment, everything that went into the show, it kind of hit him. Like, I'm doing this. I'm on a TV show. Norman was used to being behind the camera, but now he was the subject for 24 hours a day. But in the back of my mind, you know, I knew that it was going to be pretty atomic and important for someone like me to take that experience and do something that most people couldn't do. Norman is gay. And at the time, he was hanging out with Lance Loud, yes, the Lance Loud, and RuPaul. Yes, like RuPaul of RuPaul's Drag Race, RuPaul. I mean, I'm jealous of Norman's 20s. He even had them over to the loft for his birthday, but Real World didn't air that. Anyway, if Lance could get America used to seeing a gay man on TV, Norm thought maybe he could normalize it. And I always thought of the show as like driving a car. I mean, you could drive the car and get into a car wreck and act like an idiot, you know, because everything is being filmed and taped, or you could drive the car and do something with it. He felt the show was an opportunity. I thought, you know, I wanted everybody's first impression of someone that liked someone of the same sex to be super positive and really like, wow, I want to be that person's friend. But when his sexuality came up on the show, it wasn't him that brought it up. It was his castmate, Julie. And we'll get into this later, but long story short, she says he's bisexual. The thing is, Norman isn't bisexual, and the show never really corrects it. 
It was, after all, 1992, and being gay was not nearly as much a part of mainstream culture as it is today. Will and Grace would premiere six years later. Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom wasn't even on the air. They had to direct somebody to say bisexual because the advertisers were definitely pushing up against something like this, which I found out much later on that it was very difficult to, you know, sell a show. That moment, and many others, made Norman realize he was not driving the car. Just like an American family, the real world was showcasing the private lives of seven people. But they added a layer. The real world brought together strangers with little in common, stuck them under the same roof, and filmed them 24-7. Some folks were Black, others white, some rich, and some poor. And when they all became roommates and had to hash out their differences, well, conflict couldn't help but happen. MTV didn't know it then, but this was a recipe for success. The show ran more than 30 seasons with MTV canceling it in 2017. But to really dissect the impact of the series, we have to start at the beginning, with that first season in New York, when the Loftmates had no idea what they signed up for, and when the show created a format that every reality TV show that followed would emulate. This is the true story. True story. Seven strangers <laughs> picked to live in a loft. And have their lives taped. To find out what happens. <laughs> what? When people stop being polite. Could you get the phone? And start getting real. The real world. I'm your host, Mariah Smith. This is Spectacle, Episode 2, Manufacturing the Real World. Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The real world wasn't an arts project. This was reality TV, something that wasn't even a phrase back then. And this first season of The Real World, it was about to change television history and Norman's life forever. Yeah, I mean, definitely like the Kardashians of our day. I mean, I remember being in places like even Madonna was like, what in the hell? And she and those people all watched MTV, so they knew who we were. When The Real World came out, it was melding together two concepts. It had the drama of teen soaps like Melrose Place or 90210, but the gritty feeling of an art documentary. 
Back then, MTV put the music in music television. This was before Punked or The Osbournes, even before TRL, Total Request Live. If you tuned in back then, it was basically music videos all day long. But MTV wanted to get into original programming. Scripted television um, is really expensive. You know, you have to hire actors and and deal with unions and and hire writers, right? Um, But unscripted television gets around a lot of those things. That's Raquel Gates, an associate professor of cinema and media studies at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. You'll hear from her throughout the series. She's a total reality TV guru. I mean, she has a book with Flavor Flav on the cover and can dissect the camera angles on an episode of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Understanding that MTV is trying to uh, make its foray into original programming, but is also trying to capitalize on whatever the kind of like the social discourse of the moment is, um, that's the context for The Real World's premiere. So can we please talk about the first five minutes of The Real World New York? This is again Joanna, my producer. Anyone who knows the real world knows that it usually opens up with these sort of home video style intros to all the cast members coming to the house. Um, You see them with their family. You see their hometowns, whatever they do for work. And this is all kind of leading up to them getting to the real world house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They only did it for one of the cast members, and that cast member was Julie, which just felt very telling. Hello, I'm Julie, and I'm from Birmingham. Yeah, so obviously they're letting us know right away we're in the deep, deep south in Birmingham, Alabama, with this massive Confederate flag flashing across the screen, so there's no mistaking where we are and what the politics are. It feels like a hint at what's to come. What do you what do you think, Raya? Oh my God, absolutely a hint of what's to come. How would you describe Julie if you're just like how old she is, what she looks like, her family? So Julie is 19 years old. She's very young, the youngest of the cast members and like in the grand scope of even the real world as it goes on, one of the youngest people they've ever had. She's white. She has long brown hair. Um, she comes from a big family. She's the youngest of seven. And they're also super religious. They even show a clip of what you assume is her church and they show her pastor. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. You're free to live your life. What do you think about that? This is real life. So it's very cookie-cutter lifestyle, I would say. Yeah, it's like clear from the start that New York City is going to be a big adjustment. <laughs> so in the in the intro, they show her hanging out at home, in the kitchen, she's talking to her family, to her dad, and her dad seems very overprotective and very worried about his daughter going to New York City. Oh my God, he totally is. So he says something about having a friend in New York City who's going to, like, check on her every day. And then in the car on the way to the airport. Yes, he asks her to call him twice a day. So, I mean, he has all of his bases just covered. Yeah, yeah. He will not let her out of his sight. (laughs) Well, what time do you think would be good times for you to call me? 11 o'clock in the morning and 11 o'clock at night? So from the get-go, Julie becomes our protagonist. For the first six minutes of the show, it's all about her. Julie is in a cab on her way as the rest of the cast meet each other. Eric the model and Becky the musician are there by the time Kevin walks in. 
I almost fainted. I was like, my God, what is this, Fantasy Island? This loft is um, incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Heather B., the rapper, Andre, who is in a band. Then Julie's cab finally pulls up. So the gang's all there, all seven, including Julie. They've scoped out the loft and decide to get to know each other, gathering around a dining room table. They're basically giving their bios. Kevin talks about his poetry. Becky went to NYU film school and is now doing music. Eric recently started acting after a year of modeling. And Julie dances. Then Norman shares. I left Michigan in search of a painting career here in New York. And I started working with a partner. Now we have a company called Gouda, named after our dog. Heather's beeper goes off. Go, Heather. Go, Heather. What is that? It's a beeper. Do you sell drugs? Why do you have a beeper? (laughs) That moment with the pager would set up what would become the central conflict of the season. Is Julie racist? I don't consider myself racist in any way. I don't even know how it ended up like that. Again, this is 1992. When the cops who beat Rodney King got acquitted, Los Angeles rioted for days. The show is airing in the wake of that racial unrest. During season one, the cast has tough conversations about race. But it's not through the lens of the Black cast members. The plot becomes how this white girl from Alabama gets used to Black people for the first time. And in turn, she becomes a fleshed-out, fully-dimensional character. And the others, well, they sort of become tropes. It's very much about, like, this fish-out-of-water story um, of what happens when she comes to, to New York City. And that's how the show gets framed. Here's Raquel again. And the reason that's really important is because it makes all of the other cast members like others. Um, they're all supporting cast, including the Black characters, including the gay character, Norman. So it, it sets up from the very beginning how we're supposed to read that show and how we're supposed to read the conflict. But at the same time, the show has this kind of purported goal of showing us objectivity, right? Of just saying, oh, we're just turning on the cameras. You're going to see what happens. But of course, we're being guided from the very first shot. Real World producers also cast the show for conflict. Julie had lived a pretty sheltered life in her 19 years. She hadn't been around Black people or people open about their sexuality or people comfortable with their bodies. She was the baby, the youngest in the house, hadn't been to college. Basically, she had very little in common with any of the other housemates, who were pretty worldly and living on their own already. Casting Julie was like throwing gasoline on a fire. In that first episode, race comes up again, like it will throughout the series, when Heather B. and Kevin go with Julie to grab some food. The conversation gets real weird real quick. Racism is alive and well. Do you think I'm prejudiced? I think you are against white people. Really? Yeah, I think you're very bitter. Bitter? (laughs) Where did that come from? No, I'm not bitter at all. If I was bitter, I wouldn't be in that house. Now would I? In case you didn't catch that, Julie says Kevin is prejudiced and bitter against white people. Heather laughs. It sounds like that nervous laughter when you're really thinking, what the fuck? Raquel again. I mean, listen, it's a 19-year-old white woman from Alabama who's never 
met a person of color before, at least as far as I understand on the show, um, you know, proceeding to tell a black man about his identity and experience and racism. You know, I like Julie as a character, but like the immense privilege in that moment is so mind boggling to me. Looking back at the real world, we kind of think of sex in hot tubs and drunken bar fights, but the early seasons really delved into deep stuff. The first season shows Julie befriending a woman who is homeless, humanizing the unhoused in a very poignant way. Castmates go to a pro-choice rally and to one supporting Jerry Brown, who was running for president. They're unapologetically engaged and political. But race is above and beyond the central tension of the show. Watching that scene in the restaurant, uh, it's a bit exhausting. It feels like nothing has changed. Julie feels empowered to explain racism to a Black person and has no clue that she shouldn't. But it wasn't just Black roommates that were new. She quickly hits it off with Norman. They go out to the roller disco one night and they're having a lot of fun. Norman, Julie, and Heather bust out moves on the dance floor, sing in the elevator on the way back. And it's clear from the get-go that gay people are new to her, like in this call to her parents. We went roller skating at the Roxy. They played kind of like disco music, and um, there's a lot of homosexual skating there. Isn't that funny? I've never seen gay people a lot like skating to disco music. No. <laughs> I mean, that's just not a common thing. Not in Alabama. Well, that they knew of in Alabama. As we said, Norman was out. But MTV never actually asked Norman if he was gay. And all they could do is say, are you dating somebody? You know, and you just say no. But then when they gave me the contract, I was like, but you didn't ask me who I was dating. <laughs> so MTV might have not even known he was gay when they cast him. But when they did figure it out, they had Julie be the one to tell viewers in an odd, roundabout way. Norman didn't really come out and say, you know, I'm bisexual. How do you feel about that? You know, Gather around. We're going to discuss my sexuality. You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was just kind of, it just sort of surfaced. Norman normalized being gay, or in this case, being bi, since that's the way they framed it. They couldn't even handle the term gay. We call this story producing now. But back then, Norman and the other cast members had little idea producers were looking to craft a narrative, a narrative that might not be 100% true. But cast members did see hints along the way. Something that did make it to air was all of a sudden, you know, Eric Neese, who had been modeling a lot, they wanted to really get him out of his clothes as much as possible to kind of, you know, they felt like that was a ratings grabber. Um, he'd been in a Bear Pond book that Bruce Weber had shot. Bruce Weber is a famous photographer known for taking these provocative black and white pictures. This book of his work shows up in the loft, putting Eric's semi-nude pics on display for all the loft mates to stare at. Woohoo! <laughs> Look who I live with. You know, all these naked men was just in the house. You know, of course, people are like, what is this? Who brought this in? You know, hoping that one of us seven would blame another seven, you know, but really the producers had brought it in only to discover that, you know, Eric Neese is pretty much the centerfold <laughs> of that book. And 
it, you know, really put Eric on the spot because, you know, we all like, I, it's not my book. I didn't bring it in. I didn't bring it in. And then we realized, you know, from there that that was another part of this like manipulation. They tried to set Becky up on fake dates, set up fake gigs for the musicians. The real world was supposed to be letting the cameras roll as these artists lived their lives. Then the makers of the show started changing the rules. And then we felt, you know, once these things started to unravel themselves like this, we just felt like, hey, you know, we're not really being paid. You you pitched this to us as a documentary on, you know, seven artists in New York City. And this no longer is a documentary on artists. This seems to be a soap opera. Like, what's going on here? We didn't really sign up for this, you know? One day, Norman and Julie were hanging out in the loft, and they were dying from the heat of the lights. Production was gone, but they had left the lights running. You could not sleep. I mean, it was so hot. Back then, the studio lights would crank up the loft to 104 degrees. So they wanted to figure out how to turn them off. Julie and I somehow got into the control room, and there was the board, you know, everything, and what our lives were going to become in the next week or two. And so that's when (laughs) we could see, (laughs) like, a lot of other stuff was going on in the background, (laughs) you could say. It's like getting to Oz and pulling the curtain back on the wizard. Or like Jim Carrey in The Truman Show when his character survives the storm and his sailboat busts through the end of the film set. They realized, we are not the ones pulling the strings here. What did you see on the boards? I don't know the specifics now. It's been like 26 years, but it definitely was a board with a graph and different people involved of like, you know, what they're hoping to achieve, you know, through either manipulation or people showing up. And we had already witnessed that week the book with Eric being naked. And um, so that's when we you know, decided we're going to push back on this. Hi, this is our April Fool's joke. We have to, no, is everyone serious about changing their personality? And the producers always go, like, we put little pebbles in the pond. They always make it really innocent, you know. We always just throw little pebbles in the pond, but we found out when we throw pebbles in the ponds, these people throw boulders back at us. Well, that's what they're referring to. (laughs) The producers weren't documentarians or observers. In a way, they were puppeteers. That's the name of the reality TV game. They were creating drama, planting bombs or pebbles in the pond. In 2020, it's sort of like, duh, we know how all of it works. But back then, the cast had no reference point. They thought it would be their reality and the cameras would just film it. But instead, producers had a reality in mind and they would do what they had to do to create it. And now standing in that control room, Julie and Norm could see it plainly, right in front of them. We'll be right back after this ad. Remember those pebbles in the pond Norman mentioned? Well, one of the major pebbles producers threw at the cast was a conflict between Kevin and Julie in episode 11. Kevin is the Black poet and professor. Norman remembers getting a call while he was at work. Back then, the show makes you think they're in the loft all the time, but reality is they weren't, especially everyone that had lives in New York City. So they'd go back to their old places, hang out with their old friends, you know, whatever. 
And production needed a way to bring people back to the loft. So it was just kind of called, like emergency call. Like, oh my God, there's fighting. We can hear it in the loft. You've got to go down there. People are being harmed. Then to f- come walking in and find, you know, Julie and Kevin in an argument. I would cut to some tape of the fight, but there is none. No cameras were there for the actual incident, just the aftermath. Here's Raquel again. We sort of cut to this scene with Julie, and she's really upset. And there's this really sad, melancholy music playing. So there's, like, a visual of Julie just looking forlorn and upset and, like, teary, and this really sad, kind of weepy music. This is how episode 11 opens. Julie's cheeks are wet from tears, and Heather is right next to her, trying to understand her account of what happened. She's telling Heather um, about this this incident that happened with Kevin, where Kevin is on the phone. We find out later he's on the phone with someone trying to get a job, um, you know, because he has to work. He's not a 19-year-old being financially supported by his parents like she is. So he's trying to get a job, and Julie picks up the other phone and interrupts the phone call and tells him to get off the phone. Now, this is where the stories diverge, um, because according to Julie, he gets off the phone, comes in, curses her out, um, says all kinds of, you know, heinous, awful things to her, and then picks up a candlestick holder, I believe it is, um, and essentially threatens her, like physically threatens her. He's like, I'm going to break every one of your fingers and... I'm going to do this, that, and the other, and he starts... Seeing Julie that upset, Eric doesn't know why she'd make this stuff up. He's got a problem. It ain't ours. It's going to be... Norman and Heather are just, and I believe Eric too, um, are... They're just, like, they're ready to, like, take Kevin out. Um, And that's how the scene plays. Here's Norman again. And, you know, it completely the argument escalated into something that became a black and white issue. The way the scene was produced and edited, it made it seem like the show was pitting the cast against Kevin. And by doing that, they're pitting viewers against him. And I'd already been given Julie's side of the story, you know, pitched to me on the phone, you know, like, oh my God, Julie is crying and Kevin is attacking her and blah, blah, blah on the phone. So that is what I know when I come in to try to, you know, protect Julie. (laughs) The situation quickly escalates. He and Kevin are yelling at each other like inches from each other's faces. The guy's like, what the is this? You're not serious about a job. Click. Do you understand what I'm saying, Norman? Click. I feel like Norman took her side immediately, you know, and like there was no question in his mind that I was this, this person who did all these things that Julie said I did. The episode ends with Kevin and Julie talking again outside on the street, but it blows up fast. Kevin! You hear what you want to hear. And how are you going to say get off the black white thing when that's the reality? Racism is I'm everywhere. Not. That's my point. That's my point. What happened to Alabama? Because of people like yeah, you, Kevin. People like me. I, people like you, black not people, people like black me. Black people cannot be racist. Black people cannot be racist. We don't have the power to control what get people have to do. Get out of my face! I'm Why so sick of this! Kevin felt like being an assertive Black man, you're immediately painted as the bad guy. And to be fair, looking at the editing, that's not a huge leap in logic. Julie vents to the group. It cuts to Kevin. And then to a shot of the cover of the autobiography of Malcolm X. That's Raquel again. 
The interesting thing is like the scene then reveals that Kevin is just in another part of the city having a meeting with his editor. <laughs> um, like it, it has nothing to do with the conflict, but it's edited in such a way to make him seem threatening and to play on all of these kind of stereotypes and racial anxieties um, about like the angry black male. By the way, we reached out to Kevin. He declined to talk to us. Looking back, Norman has mixed feelings about it. Why cook up all of this drama around an incident that wasn't even on tape? Then it's framed in a way to pit the cast members against each other, basically all against Kevin. And it's edited to reinforce tropes. It's not great. The producers show Julie's side, and even though she's flawed, she's likable. But Kevin, he never really got that opportunity. It's almost like they cast Kevin to be a lesson for the white cast members. Thank God for Kevin being there. I mean, he, you know, he just, here he's a professor, he's teaching at NYU. He was very well-spoken, much better than us, and was able to present arguments and to give ideas and show certain parts of history that are really missing. Julie was a stand-in for white America, for the Deep South, for people who didn't have Black or gay friends. I mean, it was because of Julie and her wide appeal, you know, that pre-Jennifer Gardner kind of person to bring America or that age into these stories that they probably would have never even had a chance to go into. She did go through and all of a sudden was friends with a gay person. You know, her experiences allowed so much of us to now be on television. And there's something to be said for the storylines in these early seasons of The Real World. MTV was a largely white network. It was airing music videos by Nirvana, Guns N' Roses. MTV didn't have to deal with race on The Real World, but they chose to. That said, talking about race on TV in and of itself was not some novel, crazy thing. It was happening. Right. I mean, there's the whole episode in a different world where um, Whitley and Dwayne go to Los Angeles for their honeymoon and get caught in the middle of the L.A. riots. Here's Raquel again. And I, I mean, I think that other shows, um, scripted shows had, had definitely done that. But MTV doing it for the MTV crowd, that's definitely groundbreaking. These early seasons of The Real World would dive deeper into issues of race, LGBTQIA rights and social issues. The second season of the show would travel to Los Angeles, where Tammy Akbar had an abortion while living in the house. You might know her as Tammy Roman from Basketball Wives. That season also stuck out because of her fight with David, the other Black cast member in the house. You also had the conflict between um, Tammy and David. And David pulls the covers off of Tammy, and she is, you know, in her underwear underneath it. So just to walk you through this scene, Tammy was seen hanging around the house in her underwear with a blanket wrapped around her, sort of like a toga. David comes up and starts trying to pull it off her. Eventually, she's on the floor, clutching this blanket with all of her might. Stop, John! 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 I swear before holy God! Don't do that! I She's laughing and screaming, but it starts to take a turn. David won't stop pulling, and he's pulling so hard that he's dragging her across the floor. 
When he eventually is successful and pulls it off, her castmate Beth lays on top of her to protect her from being exposed half naked to the other housemates. And she's like kind of laughing, but clearly embarrassed and, and getting angry um, and doesn't know how to handle it. A few moments later, after she's had a second to process it, Tammy is pissed. They dragged me across the floor! In front of the camera crew! The 38 people in the production room! Bastard, I'm gonna kick his ass! Yes! And it ends with David being asked to like leave the show. To me, that's a huge moment, not just because of the moment on screen, but how that reverberated off screen um, with audiences like taking sides and bringing up lots of things about gender dynamics and, and how black women and black men get represented on these shows. So that's another huge moment for me. While David was clearly in the wrong, Raquel feels the show didn't do enough to showcase Tammy's feelings. It made viewers think she was out to get David. She gets a lot of really unwarranted backlash as if she is somehow setting up David or is the one responsible for him getting kicked off the show as opposed to him dealing with the consequences of his own behavior. And so for me, that interaction on the second season of The Real World reveals a lot about how society and viewers understand Black men and women. By its second season, the real world not only got people talking, it had viewers taking sides, asking themselves if David really should have been asked to leave, and whether or not Tammy should have terminated her pregnancy. But the show's impact was about to get even bigger. When things would take an all-too-real turn in the third season in San Francisco. Most people know this as the Pedro season. Pedro was a Cuban immigrant, gay, and HIV positive. I'm very close to my family. Uh, my family is uh, extremely open, um, not only about me being gay, but about me being HIV positive, about my friends, uh, the very accepting of uh, everything about my life. He was charming. And while Pedro made living with HIV visible, the season also charted his decline. This was at a time when being HIV positive was precarious, in many ways, a death sentence. It also raised the stakes for viewers. Season one grappled with racial tensions, season two with abortion and gender dynamics. But season three, it felt much more radical. There's a joke that he made when we were climbing the mountains about that I was going to kill him. Like saying, oh, my, I thought I was going to die of AIDS, and you're killing me up this mountain. You're going to have to deal with my Cuban father. And he made it so easy for me to, like, talk about AIDS and to want to ask and want to learn. When filming ended, his condition worsened. And that fall, he died. In his final moments, he was heralded for all the activism he did around HIV and AIDS. Then-President Bill Clinton even called him on the phone to thank him and spoke at his memorial service. People watched as his face beamed through the stacks of TVs at the front of the church. Over the past few years, Pedro became a member of all of our families. Now no one in America can say they've never known someone who's living with AIDS. He died in November of 1994 five months after filming and the day after the show's finale aired on MTV. The real world would transform as it moved from city to city, with the early aughts being dominated by drinking or 
I guess more specifically, binge drinking, which seemed to make it a show more about debauchery. But even though it was less earnest and more dramatic than its beginnings, it still got important issues out there. Like, in season 21 in Brooklyn, you see Ryan, a veteran, dealing with PTSD only to find out that he is being redeployed. And in that season, Caitlin is the first openly trans woman on the show. But those casts had the benefit of something that Norman and his castmates didn't. They knew what was coming. They knew they were on a reality show. What was your reaction when it came out? Oh, my God. I think I called Mary Ellis a used car salesman. Yelled at her. (laughs) And everybody was like, (gasps) Mary Ellis Bunum. She was the co-creator of the show. The cast was told they were in a documentary following seven artists. So when it came out, it's safe to say they were pissed. I mean, yes, the cast figured out that producers were manipulating things a bit, but they had no idea how it would be edited. And they had no idea the spectacle the show would become. Just like the Loud family, overnight, they were stars. I was dragged from one end to the other by Charlie Sheen to Will Smith to Ricky Lake. I mean, instantly we were being just, you know, carted off with like whoever. They couldn't even, they couldn't even breathe. Laura Finn Boyle. I mean, you name them. They were like, what? Ah, Losing their minds. Losing their minds. It was especially shocking to see the series catapult the network because the seven artists weren't rolling in dough when they signed up. If you're comfortable sharing, what were you all paid back then? $100 an episode. And I have a black and white photo of me, my first $100. (laughs) That is wild. Oh, yeah. No, when I saw the trades that they sold the show three years later for $500 million globally, (laughs) I almost was like, wait a second, there's 30 people that worked on the show and you can't find a way to share that or do anything or even put a 401k together? I mean, we propelled them right forward for the next... 30-some years. After the show, Norman was pushed out of Gouda, the company he had co-founded. And dating is a struggle. It's hard to find a partner who understands what being on a reality show does to your life. How strangers 25 years later still come up to you feeling like they know you. How anything you do is going to end up in a Google search. Even still, he said he would do it all again. Well, it was just such a huge, like, breakthrough. Like, there was no voice, and there was nobody standing up for the community. You know, there was no Elton John's. And then just living in my shoes and watching society change was spectacular. You know, the next, like, five years, it just seemed like one big glacier would melt after the next. And I and I had to give credit to like MTV, even knowing that they didn't know what was going to happen. The real world created this formula for quick, cheap, insatiable television. You take a bunch of strangers, you isolate them, in this case, in a Soho loft, with people different from them in every way. Then they are forced to confront their differences on camera and live everything out for viewers at home. Just think about how many reality TV shows follow that model today. Maybe one of the most notable is Survivor. You know, let's swap a Soho loft for a remote island and pizza stands for rats on a spit. It's a show that's drawn hundreds of castaways since its premiere in 2000. 
including Max Dawson. I was living in LA, and while I was pulling out of my office's parking lot, I got a phone call from Survivor Casting, and she said, what are you doing right now? And I said, I'm going to a meeting, and she said, I I need you to cancel your meeting. I need you to drive to us right now. We need to put you up in front of CBS and the network. And uh, I canceled my meeting. I rerouted my GPS. From that point, it was a matter of weeks before I was on a beach in Nicaragua, uh, you know, having Jeff Probst say, come on in, guys. That's next time on Spectacle. Spectacle is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted and co-produced by yours truly. Lead producer Joanna Clay reported and wrote this episode. Jonathan Hirsch and Shara Morris are our executive producers. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis. Our associate producer is Chloe Chobel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Andrew Epen for his original music. Laura Bullard is our fact checker. And special thanks to Raquel Gates, Crystal Genesis, Vikram Patel, and Shauna Shiro. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.